Well, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in the Word of God to uh, Acts 17. Acts 17, our text this morning is going to be verses 22 to 34. I'm going to try to make my way through the reading without my glasses. Will you stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God? So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For a while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He's fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Well, now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, We shall hear uh, you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You may be seated. I'm going to try out a Latin phrase on you here this morning. And I'm going to bet that if you've never studied a day of Latin, you will know what this phrase means. Ignorantia juris non excusat. Now let me, let me agree, you've never studied a day of Latin in all of your life, but you know exactly what this word means, or the phrase means, because it means ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? And it's built upon the principle, and it's part of our system of justice here in America, but it's built upon the principle that um, there is an inherent morality. Therefore, I don't need to know uh, every statute of the law in order to understand what is moral. And the, the law, the theory is, is based upon morality. So uh, whether I know each and every statute would expounds morality, I have um, uh, culpability before the law if I break it because I know what is moral. In other words, uh, I would never have had to have read the Ten Commandments to know that it's immoral and it's illegal criminally to murder my neighbor. I would never have had to read the criminal code to know that I'm not supposed to sneak over to my neighbor's garage in the middle of the day when the door is up and steal his tools. And the reason why I would never have to have read the Ten Commandments or have read the criminal code of the state of California to know that is because we are inherently in touch with what is moral by virtue of our creation in the image of God. Now, I know today that our system of jurisprudence rejects that, that underpinning to the concept of ignorance of the law is no excuse, but this is really its origin. We are all in touch with the truth. We all inherently have some sense of basic morality because we are made in the image of God. Therefore, ignorance of the law is no excuse. 
I use the concept because essentially I'm going to argue that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying to these Greeks. Ignorance of Christ is no excuse. You see, they've heard Paul preach this man named Jesus and his cohort, Anastasis, the resurrection. And having heard him preach Jesus and Anastasis, they came up with the peculiar notion that, that Paul was doing something and violated the code of Athens. He was introducing strange gods into the city without the approval of the Areopagus. And the Apostle Paul, having been hauled before this august body of philosophers, thinkers, and ex-magistrates, defends his preaching of Jesus and Anastasis based upon a simple and fundamental principle. You know the truth. And your ignorance of it is no excuse. Your ignorance of it is no excuse. The fact that they didn't recognize Jesus and the power of the resurrection makes no difference to the Apostle Paul because his argument is they should have known. They should have known. And so in order to bring them to the true God and the Lord Jesus Christ savingly, he exposes the darkness of idolatrous intellectual thinking and then he leads them or seeks to lead them to intellectual renewal and spiritual renewal and repentance by causing them or having them to embrace a divine special revelation. So let's think about that. This is our main point this morning here is that unbelieving thought is intellectual darkness, but, but mental renewal comes through embracing uh, Christ in the Word and in special revelation. Two parts, darkness of uh, idolatrous worship and thought, and then second, we'll take up this morning uh, the uh, call to intellectual renewal through embracing Christ in the Word. So let's think, first of all, the darkness of idolatrous worship and thought. And may I just say in advance that this speech or sermon has two basic elements to it. And the, the first part is, is Paul takes on the, the darkness and intellectual bankruptcy of false religion and idolatry. And in the second leg of, of this portion of the sermon, he turns his guns away from the idolatry of false religion to the idolatry of secular philosophy. That's where he's going. All of that is the, the context uh, uh, for the call to intellectual renewal. But, but before we get to that, we need to put our shoes, our, our feet in the shoes of those who are there. We need to remember how this scene develops and, and why Paul is here challenging the intellectual darkness of idolatry and false religion. You see, verse 22 tells you the context a bit. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. He's standing, which is uh, the position of somebody like him, who has been called before this august council of the Areopagus. This means then that he is the one who's been asked the question, and now he is functioning as his own, uh, his own uh, witness, defending himself and his views, and he addresses the people who are before him respectfully, I would say politely even, men of Athens... He doesn't say, you smug idolaters and you, you foolish philosophers. He treats them with respect. And just as an aside, this is exactly how uh, the Word of God teaches us to break down the gospel and to bring the Word of God to those who don't believe. The Apostle Peter says that we are to give a reason for the account of the hope which lies within us with what? Meekness and fear. So we see here before us is, is a model of how we ought to be when we engage in gospel witness to the unbeliever, not with haughtiness and contempt, but with gentleness and meekness. Men of Athens, let me speak to you as fellow men. And of course, the reason he is here uh, is because he's been charged. And in a sense, I guess that makes his form of address somewhat remarkable because the reason why he is here before this body is because they've already suggested they have essentially charged him, although I don't think you could say that they've made a legal charge yet, but they have charged him with proclaiming strange gods. 
And they've somehow mistaken his message, it seems to me, because the way they report it here, at least how Luke records it in the text, when they accuse him of proclaiming strange things, plural, it suggests to us that they have misunderstood his message and they have misunderstood him to be proclaiming a God named Jesus, masculine and gender, and a goddess, Anastasis, feminine and gender. That seems to be the mistake, at least in part. But Jesus is simply preaching Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. But you see the reason why they've misunderstood it, Paul will get to later. But for now, that seems to be the concern as he's introducing new gods. And so it is the duty of this council called the Areopagus Council to evaluate the message. One, to see if it's dangerous. Two, to see whether maybe they uh, might license him. Or, or three, to see whether they should bring criminal charges against him for corrupting the population of Athens. But you see here, he addresses them in verse 22, men of Athens. And I think it's important for at least the moment to remind ourselves of the city in which he preached. We said last time as we expounded the prior section here, chapter 17, that Athens uh, was a city of greatness and antiquity. It was the high water mark of culture. It was the seat of Greek poetry, of Sophocles and Euripides and so on. It was the seat of the philosophers and the great philosophical schools of, of Socrates, of Plato and Aristotle. It was the place of great art and architecture. Chief among all of that would have been the Parthenon, which would have been in full view of the people gathered there before the Areopagus Council. And yet in spite of all of the city's sophistication and cultural greatness, Paul is struck by something else. It's just a swamp of idols. That's the best interpretation of verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him because the city was full of idols. The best way to translate that word full of idols is that it was submerged in idolatry. It was covered over with idolatry. It was in a swamp of idolatry. And so here, the greatest city of antiquity, the most sophisticated cultural city of antiquity, uh, Paul is struck by the fact that it's just simply a place of great idolatry. It's a wash in idols. And now he follows up that thought here, sweeping it out a little bit further when he says, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. You see, the very thing that drove him out into the marketplace to preach Jesus Christ is now the very same thing that he says as he addresses the council. I observe after careful, systematic, detailed uh, study of your city having taken the windshield tour, driving through town, the thing that I am struck by is you're very religious in all respects. Some have thought that Paul might be attempting flattery here. He might be trying to curry favor as a Greek speaker might under such circumstances where there's a perception of some sort of hostility or just a slice through the air as a gesture of goodwill. But then we learn from ancient poets that it was a crime to flatter the council, so he couldn't have been doing that. The term is ambiguous, but I think we might suggest here that Paul was just speaking truthfully. I perceive that you're very devoted to your religious objects. They cover the whole town. And what's interesting, that in the midst of all of that, Paul found a point of contact. That's where he wants to go. He says in verse 22 here that he has observed that they are very religious. Now he says, give me a case and give you a case in point here. Verse 23, I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship and I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now think again, this is quite marvelous to us in a sense, isn't it? The city is awash in idolatry. 
And yet in spite of all of its monuments and shrines and temples and, and iconography and, and uh, all that Paul encountered, it's quite astonishing to us that he has come across one thing which he views can be a point of contact with the people that he's speaking to. And it's this altar to the unknown God. And the second that you hear it, it just sounds odd to our thinking. Why in the world would you have an altar to a God whom you do not know? And the answer is that centuries before this, when Paul was standing before this council, a tremendous uh, plague had swept over the city and uh, calling upon all of the gods uh, proved to be ineffectual. And so uh, legend has it that a particular wise man was consulted and uh, uh, he told the, the city fathers to unleash a herd of sheep upon the city and let them wander. And when, wherever they stopped at that place, make a sacrifice to that God. Well, as the story goes, they stopped at an altar which had no name. And from henceforth, it was called the altar to the unknown God. It's silly even in your thinking about it, because here is this culture which prides itself uh, for its rationality, and at, at the bottom of it is nothing but slippery irrationalism. Listen to how Paul describes it here. He says that they found the altar to an unknown God, and he says, you worship this God in ignorance. And this is the essence of the bipolarity of unbelieving thought. For all of its bluster about thumping upon its chest and describing and characterizing its thought as logical and rational, ultimately it reduces to nothing but absurdity in irrationalism. Because what it is ignorant of, it professes to have enough confidence and knowledge about to worship, even though it doesn't even know it. The strange dialectic permeates the thought of unbelief, and this is what Paul is going to sweep out. But he looks at this altar and he says, I am going to proclaim to you this God. And so he does what they worship in ignorance. Paul will proclaim. And it's that God who is already proclaimed, Jesus, who is the resurrection of the life. So let's take up the portion of the sermon now where Paul directly challenges uh, the idolatry and false religion which pervades the city. And, and what he says to this particular group of people is that God is the creator and provider of all things. That's essentially his argument to them, and he draws out the implications. But notice, first of all here, he proclaims God as creator in verse 24. He says, The God who made the world and all things, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The only thing I'm going to call to your attention at this point is that in the original, it literally says, the God, the maker. Let that settle in a moment. He is proclaiming unto them the unknown God, and he says, he's not just one of many. He is the God, and he is the maker of the earth and everything in it. Verse 26. He narrows it down. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live upon the face of the earth. Notice here, he's drawing from the imagery of Genesis. He's speaking of the one man, which is Adam, and he says that there is a stream of blood which permeates the world, which humanity shares. It comes from a single fountain and source. And likely this was a stab at the Greek self of uh, self-superiority and pride in its ethnicity. But the point of it here is, is he levels out humanity and he places them all upon the same footing. And he says, all of us have come from the one man, Adam. God is the maker of all of humanity from Adam forward. So he proclaims uh, that God is, the God is the creator. And then in verse 25, he moves on to proclaim him as the provider, saying, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath 
in all things. Notice here the accent upon God as provider, divine providence. He is perpetually giving. That's what the tense of the verb suggests to us. And what he gives here is life and breath. Another allusion back to Genesis. Remember uh, uh, the way it emerges in Genesis 2, the creation of Adam is that God has shaped him into a giant mud pie. And then he gets down on his knees and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And he's quickened in that instance. This is the language here Paul uses to describe God's providence. He is the one that gives man life. But he takes it far beyond just life here in the next phrase because he says he gives him life and breath and all things. So in other words, the picture here is not just the provider of life, but the sustainer of life. There's a comprehensive a sweep and scope to this description of God and His interactive uh, uh, response to creation. He's not a God who's aloof. He's not like Aristotle's unmoved mover who just spends his day thinking thoughts about himself. He's not some cosmic watchmaker who set everything in motion and then just let it uh, unravel as time went by. No, he presents God as the creator and the sustainer, the hands-on God who's in control of all of life and directing it to his good and sovereign purposes and ends. And so he's proclaimed the truth about God and now he draws out its implication in two very succinct and fascinating ways. So first of all, he takes this thought of God as the creator and he exposes the folly of idolatrous false religion in view of it because he says he's proclaiming the God who made the world and all things since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands. Here is the first biting yet penetrating critique of the idolatry of false religion. Because what he says here is that since he is Lord, since he is Lord, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Now think of how... Think of how that landed upon these uh, members of the Areopagus Council because all, all around them what they could see on their sight line were temples. Chief among them would have been the Parthenon, which housed this 40-foot statue of the goddess Athena uh, riding bareback on a horse with a spear that went straight up in the sky that you could see from 40 miles away. And the biting and penetrating criticism Paul makes of false religion and idolatry is that God isn't housed in temples made with human hands. And the penetrating nature of the critique is not just that God isn't housed in temples, but the quality of those temples, not with human hands. That's the key. He's not dwelling in temples made with human hands. When you come across this language of with human hands or not with human hands in Scripture, it contains an implicit contrast. It contains an implicit contrast, and that contrast is between things made with human, with human hands and things not made with human hands, that is, divinely. One of the best ways to, to enter into this contrast is Colossians 2.11, where Paul speaks of, of this circumcision instituted by Jesus Christ, which is baptism. And he speaks of it like this. He says, you have received a circumcision not with human hands. Well, obviously what stands behind that is the whole physical circumcision of of human hands instituted in the Old Testament. And now Paul is proclaiming a new circumcision which comes through Jesus Christ. And the key difference between them is that this one is made without human hands. It's divine and therefore of an infinitely greater capacity and quality. So this is the point here that the Apostle Paul is pressing upon this Greek audience. You may, uh, you may be captivated by the magnificence of your temples. They may be a projection of the pride that rests in your hearts. But the God who is the maker of the heaven and earth isn't contained or housed 
and temples made with human hands. He's infinite in being. The maker of heaven and earth isn't squeezed into the box of your own creation. And this is the critique of false religion right here. Because at heart, this is what false religion seeks to do to God, to shrink Him down to size and to squeeze Him into a box of its own making, to domesticate and tame God and make Him in its own image. And so the first thing that Paul rejects about the idolatry of the city which surrounds him, he says, God, who is the maker of heaven and earth and the provider and sustainer of all things, doesn't fit in man-sized boxes. And then he brings out the second critique of false religion and idolatry in verse 25. By the way, the very structure of uh, Paul's unfolding thought here makes it clear he's emphasizing these things about the, uh, the failure, the conceptual failure of false religion and idolatry because he says one negative thing. He doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands. And he says the second negative thing right back against it. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Remember the affirmation at the end of the verse that He is the provider and sustainer of all things. Paul proclaims uh, not only the God of creation, but He is the God of providence. That's the affirmation and the denial is grounded in the substance and reality and truth of that. The provider and sustainer of all things doesn't need to be served. I wish there was a better way to draw this out into English, but the word here for serve doesn't mean exactly what we might think it means. The word for serve here means to heal or to restore. Therapeuo. What Paul is saying to his Athenian audience full of idolaters, he's saying, God doesn't need to be healed by you. Think of the implication bound up with such a notion that God needs to be served by you. That God is somehow broken, that He is somehow deficient, that He is somehow incomplete. And what He needs are the powerful, omnipotent resources of a wise and benevolent humanity. You see, the implication of that is to see that God is somehow reduced and diminished in dignity below the level of a human being. If you think through idolatry and false religion, Paul was saying that if you think God needs your service, which you obviously do, well, you wouldn't have tricked out the city with all these temples for idols, with all of its worship. What you're saying is that God is less than you. God is deficient. God needs to be healed. God needs to be restored. And Paul says, to counteract it, he doesn't need anything. Your offerings of food are useless. God is not famished. Your endless religious ceremonies with all of their creativity don't flatter Him. It's a fairly penetrating critique of idolatry. Because what it does is it shows the smallness of the thinking behind it. It shows how uh, intellectually bankrupt it is. It shows how small-minded and how provincial it is. These are to be the wisest, most sophisticated thinkers on earth, and yet their whole theory of religion reduces to a bunch of absurdities. Capturing God in a box? God needs you to heal Him because He's broken? He unmasked the arrogance of false religion here in two simple little strokes of the pen, as it were. But He's not done. Because you remember, gathered before Him are not just idolatrous worshipers who take part in false religion. Surely they're that. But also in the group of philosophers. Remember, those are the people that we noted back in the previous text were listening to him and Paul was engaging. They were the Epicureans and the Stoics. 
And so his mission here, in order to lead this group of people with all of its hangers-on and onlookers to Christ, is that he has to show that both systems of thought are intellectually bankrupt. The thought of false religion, but now the thought of secular humanistic philosophy is empty as well. And so he moves now to the intellectual darkness of unbelieving philosophy, And the first thing he points out about it is that it's no better than a blind man groping away in the darkness. Look at verse 27. We come into the thought midstream, but we can backload and backfill from here. He says that they should seek God if perhaps they may grope for Him and find Him. The word uh, grope here is quite vivid. It suggests a blind person trying to make their way without braille. He says, this is what it's like to be an unbelieving philosopher. And it's quite a a sarcastic critique at, at, at minimal level because this is exactly what unbelieving philosophy prides itself in, is its insightfulness, its explanatory power. It's superiority because it's unsullied from uh, and uncorrupted from uh, the uh, mysteries of religion and the fantasy of religion, right? It's just pure, straight, unadulterated, logic, rationalism. And Paul says what it is is nothing more than blind men stumbling around in the dark seeking to find their way. But Paul's not done critiquing it there. What he wants to show is the aggravation. Why is it so bad that they're this way? And there's a series of things he does here to show the aggravation of the blindness. Because he's trying to show that they're morally culpable for this blindness. And so he goes through a series of steps to show that it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. And, and the beginning point of his argument that it doesn't have to be this way is that Paul now reaches back to the notion of God as provider and it brings it forward into the argument against autonomous intellectual philosophy. And he says that the whole point of God in providence was to lead men to seek after Him that they may find Him. Look at the connection of ideas. You can go back in to verse 26 now where we've already seen the note to creation here at the outset of verse 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. That's what I want you to look at. Because he moves almost seamlessly from creation back to the notion of divine providence here. And the, uh, the, the, the note that he strikes about divine providence is, is struck right here, indetermined. This is the eternal counsel. This is the sovereign will of God. And what he's done is he's determined appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Without going into any length, it seems to me we can simply yet responsibly say this is about the sweep of history. He has determined the rise and fall of nations. I think that's what Paul is saying. Remember, he's just said that God has made from one every nation of mankind to spread out and to live upon the face of the earth. And the very next thought is of God's providence. He has determined the rise and fall of these nations. He has set the boundaries of these nations and cultures. But I want you to notice what should be the first word in your Bible in verse 27. That. You see, he is saying here that the purpose of God's providential ordering and arrangement of the full scope and sweep of humanity throughout the earth was so that they would seek Him. The aggravation of the blindness is that God has arranged it so they would seek Him. The aggravation of the blindness is that they know better because God has been doing good and providing food and wine and gladness to the hearts of men. He has determined their appointed times and seasons. 
so that they would seek Him. The purpose of providence was they would pursue God. And yet the next aggravation is contained in what follows. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. And here now, He reinforces the culpability. They should have found Him. Providence directed the way. And the second thing is, He's near. He is near to each one of us. Why are you groping in the darkness like blind men without braille? He is near to us. And you start thinking about that notion of God being near. One of the interesting things you'll see about it is in the Old Testament, it's often used in connection with the call to gospel grace. God is near. Come receive pardon. Listen to how Isaiah sweeps it up in Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's here. Notice here what he's saying. God is near. And now he finishes with the unfolding of that thought in a powerful statement of grace in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. Notice the proclamation of the nearness of God in Scripture is the entryway to the receiving of God's grace. He is near to be found. He is near to show mercy. He is near to receive pardon from. But the condition? Oh, it's right here, and it's the problem. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. This is bound up in what the Apostle was saying here. He's proclaiming that providence was pointing the way. God is near. The message of pardon has been brought right to your doorstep here in Aston with the preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. And you've missed it because of your own willful blindness. Your darkness is self-imposed. You have pushed God away. Why? Because they were so busy scrubbing away the guilt of their conscience through saying there's no God and there's no afterlife that they didn't need the message. Remember the Epicureans. You see, at the bottom, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, that men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They have it. Not just that it's available and some people make access, uh, access it and make use of it. No, the Apostle Paul says, they know God. But they impose upon themselves willful blindness because they exchange the truth for a lie. Some exchange the truth for the lie of idolatry and false religion. And some exchange the truth for the lie of vain, empty, secular philosophy. But either way, what Paul is saying here is the blindness is self-imposed. To confirm the nearness of God, now turn to verse 28, because it's fascinating what Paul does. He appeals to the knowledge they have of these things. And what he does here in verse 28 is, quote, two separate Greek poets. For in him we live and move and exist, first of all, is a quotation from Epimenides the Cretan. This is a Greek philosopher-poet, and what he said is, In him we live and move and have our being. And the triad, live and move and have being, shows the comprehensive dependence of humanity upon God. Saying this to autonomous would-be intellectual philosophers, by the way. In him we live and move and have our being. Your own Greek poet said that. And then he quotes again from another as it makes more explicit here in the latter part of verse 28, as your own poets have said, we also are his children, Eratus of Cilicia, another philosopher poet, and essentially what he is saying is the denial of the Epicurean lie. Remember what the Epicurean lie was? We're all just the result of atoms smashing together randomly in space from no intentional plan, existing now for arbitrary reasons, and heading most certainly to extinction. Paul quotes from their own 
as your own have said. We are His children. We have been made by God. We have been created in His image. We have been made for His glory and to serve Him. You see what He is doing? He's exposing the folly of the intellectual darkness which pervades the school of the philosophers to again make sure they understand the, the problem is with them, it's not with God. The problem is not that God's revelation has been inadequate. It's not that God has left himself without witness. The intellectual blindness is self-imposed, and now when you come to verse 29, you dig into the depths of Paul's criticism. And it's a trenchant, powerful criticism of all unbelieving thought, but I'm going to argue that primarily it is directed to the school of philosophers. Look at verse 29. And the reason why I say it's primarily directed to the school of philosophers will be evident in a moment. But notice here verse 29. Being then the children of God... We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and the thought of man. And here now Paul exposes the cause of the darkness, the cause of the intellectual darkness of fallen human thinking. And one reason why I say he's still addressing the philosophers is because of those first two words, being then. It's one word in the original. It is therefore, and I would argue it's most immediately looking back to the statements of the Greek poets, two of them, he's just quoted in verse 28. And so now what Paul is doing, I'm going to argue in verse 29, it would apply to false religion and idolatry as well. But I think uh, most immediately what Paul is attacking is the idolatrous nature of fallen human philosophical reasoning apart from divine revelation. This is being children of God. And then he goes on to characterize. And he forms an epitome of fallen human thinking. And it's, um, it's humorous in its uh, biting uh, sarcasm. Notice how he describes the nature uh, of human thinking. And by the way, I, I can concede he's, he's basically using what they are doing to form an admonition against what they are doing. But it does the job still, because underneath it is the same idea. This is what you are doing. This is the epitome of human thinking. When he says, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver, here's the key. An image formed by the art and the thought of man. Let's start with that, because it's the most vivid, really. This is, this is what human thinking is like. At, at bottom level, here it is. It is an image made by an artist. It is a piece of wood or stone. And it is inscribed upon by the skillful hand of an artist or a craftsman. It bears a stamp or an imprint or an inscription. He says, this is the epitome of human thinking. It is covering over something and placing an inscription upon it. And then the next phrase really lowers the boom on it, the criticism here. He says, it flows from the thought of man. In other words, he says, you peel back the layers, you skin back the flesh, you dig into the depths of the human person. And by the way, I'm using this imagery and this language uh, for a reason, because that is precisely what is meant by this particular word, thought. It's that which is latent. It is that which is buried deep. It is that which flows from the deep inner recesses of the heart. And what is the guiding hand behind the craftsman who's stamping the image upon uh, the, the covered over piece of wood or stone? It is a thought which flows from man's heart. Intellectual darkness is self-imposed because it flows. It flows from what a man thinks. Because they've decided to determine who God is and what truth is and what morality is like based upon the thought of the human heart. And Paul characterizes it all as immoral. He says, we ought not to think. We ought not 
to think in this way. And the immorality of it is not just that it's wrong to make images like this and to reject biblical revelation, replace it with the fool's gold of human understanding. But, but the aggravation of it all is added to by the, the, the entry affirmation in verse 28. Being then the children of God, knowing who you are, knowing that you have been created by a magnificent and powerful and sovereign and eternal God, knowing that, how could you exchange the knowledge of God for what you know is the figment of your, ad, of your own imagination, of the thoughts of your own heart. It reminds us precisely then of what Paul says in Romans one twenty five. Instead of acknowledging the truth, he exchanges the truth of God for a lie and worships the creature rather than the Creator. So what has he done? He's exposed the intellectual foundations of, uh, of both uh, idolatry, idolatrous false religion, and, and secular philosophy. And he's shown the absurdity. He's unmasked it. He's shown its intellectual weakness. It proclaims itself potent and powerful, and Paul shows it to be flimsy. It's really nothing. It's as strong as a human thought. But he turns now, and we're in the home stretch when we hit verse 30. By the way, I know that's, that's a lot of stuff. That's, that's the heavy-duty uh, conceptual imagery. It's, it's an intricate argument. I, I know all of that is tough. So I, I hope you grasp some of it. And now, see what the finish line says here. Because what Paul has been doing is he's saying, I'm trying to lead you to Jesus and the resurrection. But you have to give up your confidence in your own intellectual prowess. You have to stop suppressing the truth and exchanging it and replacing it for a lie. And you have to have now your mind renewed. You need intellectual renewal through embracing Christ and the Word. Christ and special revelation. We don't have time to, to expound now in any depth what's before us. Let me just quickly show you that this is special revelation. The first uh, seed of special revelation which Paul plants here, he says in verse 30. And by the way, we turn to application with that word, therefore. We pivoted away from what he was doing, exposing the intellectual bankruptcy of fallen human thinking and its darkness. And now he's saying this is what you need for intellectual renewal. And he begins, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God. See, he, first of all, he's saying, you, you can describe this whole uh, uh, swath of time from the fall of Adam right up to uh, the cross of Jesus Christ as the times of ignorance. That's what it is. It is the time of ignorance. And Paul says, God has put an exclamation point upon it, it's over. The times of ignorance are over. He overlooked it, but now they are over. The season epitomized by erecting altars to unknown God and worshiping in ignorance, what you don't know, it's over. It's over. And just to help them sense the urgency of grasping it's over and agreeing that it's over, Paul moves from that thought to the thought of the judgment. In verse 31, he says he's appointed a man through whom to judge the world because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Remember, I told you, he is trying to express the culpability. There is moral judgment upon those who continue to reject the, the, the truth and replace it with a lie. And so he says there is a day of judgment coming. God has appointed the time. We don't know what it is, but it's certain it's fixed. It's through a man. This must be Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as Jesus himself testifies. It's according to the standard of perfect divine righteousness. And what Paul says, and finally, this is just absolutely stunning. This is a masterful discourse, by the way. But remember the reason why he's on charges, or sort of charges, or pseudo-charges, or at least under the charge of inquiry. For what? For preaching Jesus and Anastasis, resurrection. And so here it comes in the last word of the discourse. And he says, oh, by the way, the proof that God's going to judge you for your willful rejection of the truth. 
God's having furnished a proof to all men of judgment by raising him from the dead. None less than the Son of Man who was raised from the dead is the one who will sit upon that great white throne of judgment before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That gives real punch now to this. Come back to verse 30 and notice this is where Paul was headed the whole time. And it's the call to intellectual uh, renewal. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. What is Paul aiming for in this Areopagus address? Repentance. What Paul has been aiming at since he stood up in the midst of the council and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive you're very devout, is repentance. What he's been aiming at through this entire discourse is to lead them to intellectual renewal and to repentance. To repent of the idea of believing that you can stuff God in a box in a tricked out temple somewhere. It was to lead them to repent of the notion that God is somehow broken and needs healing and restoration from the meager resources of finite men, even though He's the provider and sustainer of all things. He's been aiming at the repentance of those who are groping in the darkness of midday like blind men without braille, repenting of that intellectual folly and darkness which was self-imposed, which was the result of exchanging the truth for a lie. The aim is to lead them to repent, to see their autonomy, their own resources. They're not enough. What they need is Christ. You see, what Paul was aiming at was to flush the swamp of idolatry out of Athens through the preaching of the law and the gospel in order they may be sprinkled with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So he calls them to the maker. He calls them to the provider. He calls them to the one who is near. He calls them to Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. That they would put away the childish idols and the pompous arrogance of secular philosophy with all of its emptiness. And come to know the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's conclude with just a couple of quick applications. And the first thing that I would have us uh, take away for our application here this morning is that we need to maintain a proper assessment of fallen human thinking. One of the things that Paul does for us here in this discourse is he addresses the most elite, you could say, in that very sophisticated culture, is he helps us maintain and acquire a proper assessment of fallen human thinking. I think this is critical because for all of its apparent sophistication, unbelieving thought really does reduce to the absurd picture of blind men groping, trying to find their way without braille. And and I say that because it feels so contrary to what we think sometimes. Because when we look at unbelieving thought, often we are captivated by the sense of it looking really strong. If you've ever sat in the midst of the academy, if you've ever sat under some elite philosophical thinkers, if you've ever sat in a room full of people who have no agreement with you intellectually, who are in full-blown unbelief and denial of the truth, you sense this. It feels powerful. And he's saying this to the people who are at the seat of rhetoric and art and poetry and architecture and philosophy. And yet, he peels back the layers and he shows underneath all of the glamour of it. He says, really, all it is is an image inscribed upon an object which flows from the heart, which is dark. So behind all the fancy language and the philosophical glitter of unbelieving thought, Paul says are just tiny ideas which flow from finite hearts. People of God, I know you're constantly challenged 
I know we all are constantly challenged to wonder whether you can trust the Word of God. It's a reality we face. And so if you find yourself struggling, the next time you find yourself struggling, which voice will I listen to? You remind yourself of Paul's analysis of the roots of unbelieving thought. It's nothing more than an image inscribed upon an object which flows from the dark recesses of a depraved, fallen human heart. It's tiny. The second thing by way of application for us is we are to respond to the challenge to intellectual renewal through repentance as often as we hear it. Let me say it again. We are to respond to the challenge of intellectual renewal through repentance as often as we hear it. You see, the application that Paul would have for the Athenians in Acts 17.30, which is to repent and to receive intellectual renewal, is the same to us today. And I know that's the case because of what Paul says in Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, the same call to intellectual renewal through repentance goes to them and it goes to us. We need to not be conformed to the thinking of this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The verb tenses are present tense, which means it's a perpetual call to renewal. It is a perpetual call to renew your mind. You see, Paul was a realist. He understood what it was to struggle in this body of sin. If you don't understand that, just read Romans 7 again. He understood it. His realism and his pastoral wisdom. And so the same admonition given to the Athenians is the same to us this morning. Intellectual renewal through repentance and faith and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and cleansing our minds by turning it to the Word of God. And so this morning I I leave you with this final plea and admonition is to steep your thoughts in the Word of God. Meditate upon the truth. We are inundated every second of the day with uh, imaging and messaging to the point that our minds are literally being choked to death by information. In two weeks, we take in as much data as people in all of rest civilization before us took in their entire lifetime. And it's not going to slow down anytime soon. And so what we need is to settle our minds and quiet our hearts and do the very simple thing of shutting off our phones and the televisions and coming before the Word of God and taking in the Scripture and renewing our mind with truth. You'll be surprised at how much unnecessary luggage you took on board up here. When you begin to bring your word to your mind to the word, and you shine the bright light of truth upon it, seek intellectual intellectual renewal as often as the word of God calls you to it, which is today, and take the challenge to make its thoughts your thoughts. You begin to wash your mind with the waters of divine grace. You will experience what Paul commends to the saints renewal of our mind through the Word. Father, this morning uh, we thank you for uh, a contemporary challenge taken from an ancient text. We thank you for the skill of your Apostle who um, walked those who were in blindness and unbelief so skillfully uh, through their own ignorance and willful blindness to show them that there was another way And even though it was done 2,000 years ago, uh, its principles are as contemporary as we are. And so, Lord, this morning, help us to uh, take assessment of the world around us which seeks to uh, destroy faith and to undermine our conviction 
uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in Him. Help us to take note of really what's behind it. And not only is it... Uh, not only is it enshrined and enshrouded in darkness, but it's also nothing more than the tiny thoughts of men's hearts. And so help us to take courage and strength, knowing that the Word of God is mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And so, Lord, help us then to cleanse our minds with the truth of Your Word, that we would be sanctified and spiritually renewed as often as we come before Your Word and savor its light and its truth. Hear us for Jesus' sake. Amen.